My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Kevin Paul and Arabella Colombier. The popular image of the university is as an institution that's a little bit apart from the so-called real world. And if this sometimes opens up the university to populist attacks on courses and research that are all too easily portrayed by the malicious and the ill-informed as weird or wasteful, it can also sometimes have a protective effect. You wouldn't understand, and it's technical, and it's academic freedom. But universities are not separate from the world. They're very much a part of the world. And even if undue attention sometimes goes to those few small corners of universities that have been carved out by struggle and used for critical or even radical knowledge production, much more common is work that contributes in massive and crucial ways to reproducing the oppressive status quo. That means a lot of different things at different institutions, but one is involvement in research that has horrific impacts on the world. Research that serves destructive industries, for instance, or research for military purposes that supports the killing of civilians and the perpetuation of global injustice. Kevin and Arabella are members of Demilitarize McGill. This group, founded in the aftermath of the massive student strike in Quebec in 2012, builds on a long tradition of students at Montreal's largest Anglophone university organizing against the significant levels of military research that have long been done on that campus. When this incarnation of the group began, few people even knew that such research was taking place, but now it is a regular topic of campus conversation. In addition to wrestling information from the secretive university administration and publicizing what actually happens at this supposedly public institution, they have been taking action to disrupt this research. They talk with me about exactly what kinds of military research are happening at McGill, about what that says about the social role of the university, and about the actions they've been taking in response. I spoke with them by Skype to phone from Montreal and Skype from Los Angeles, respectively. My name is Kevin, and I'm a student at McGill, and I've been part of uh, Demilitarized McGill since the current version of the group started up in fall of 2012. And I'm Arabella. I am also a student at McGill, and I've been involved with the club since, I think, March. Demilitarized McGill is a group that is the current iteration of a, of a long history of organizing at McGill University against military research projects and other kinds of collaboration with the military. The current version has been active since fall 2012, and we are about 10 to 15 people organizing against military research projects on McGill's campus. From what we know, the history of it goes back to the 1980s, to a group of students who, who did not use the name Demilitarized McGill, but who were protesting military research, primarily that of the Shockwave Physics Group, which is a research group that has been active since the 1960s and whose research has been applied from the Vietnam War through to Afghanistan and Iraq. 
the group in the late 80s staged an occupation that lasted three days of the vice principal research's office. That occupation resulted in the first ever university policy regulating military research specifically, and certain researchers were then required to indicate whether their research would have direct harmful consequences. That policy was in effect for close to 20 years. There's like questions as to its effectiveness. The policy did not necessarily restrict any research from being conducted and only certain research, specifically that directly funded by military agency grants, was covered under it. Nevertheless, a gain had been made based on the pressure that students at that time were able to put on the administration. The next surge in this type of organizing started around 2007 with the first group that took on the name Demilitarized McGill. That group was active through 2010. They staged protests, they had a petition, they had die-ins at uh, military recruiting events on campus, and that led up to a policy review process initiated by the administration, which they participated in. Members of the administration promised them that this process would lead to a stronger policy regulating military research, measures which would actually restrict the ability of researchers to engage in projects with direct harmful consequences. At the end of this process, however, the drafted reforms that demilitarized McGill had worked with the administration to develop were simply removed at the first possible opportunity at the University Senate. And not only were those proposals scrapped, but the existing regulation that had been won via the 1988 occupation was also removed from the research policy, leaving military research effectively unregulated at McGill. That effort, from what we know, died out as, a, I think, a demoralizing moment in 2010 when that policy reform effort failed. That's where we come in, starting in 2012, trying to learn from the history of these movements, not repeat the same mistakes, specifically holding a, like a high degree of skepticism towards university governance processes that we might be invited into as a means of changing the situation in regards to military research. Tell me what you know about what kinds of military research are happening at McGill today. Perhaps the most long-standing military collaboration among McGill researchers would be at the Shockwave Physics Group. This is a research group in the Department of Mechanical Engineering that conducts research into detonation and combustion with applications primarily to a weapon known as thermobaric explosives. These are unlike conventional explosives in that they detonate in two stages. You have an initial explosion that releases a cloud of fuel, and secondly, a charge igniting it that creates an explosion and a pressure wave that can knock down buildings and kill people by asphyxiation. The nature of the bomb is such that the oxygen in the air becomes part of the weapon itself, allowing blast waves to travel around corners and through tunnels. So the military has found this to be particularly useful targeting caves and bunkers, and accordingly it's been used extensively in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, and in Iraq by the U.S. and allied militaries. So starting around 1967 and into the late 80s, the Shockwave Physics Group was receiving grants from the U.S. Air Force and Canada's Department of National Defense for research relating to the development of these explosives. So you have a lab complex in the basement of the mechanical engineering building at McGill, where you have machinery detonation chambers where tiny explosions are carried out in experiments over and over. 
that's what it looks like concretely. The results are, and the research priorities are set in ways that do directly support the development of more efficient, more lethal versions of these bonds. So there is sort of a pause following the 80s and into the 90s in this research. But over the past 15 years, we've seen the revived focus on a new generation of these bombs that use a metallic fuel that spreads in a dust cloud rather than a liquid fuel. The researcher leading this at McGill has been David Frost, and we've seen as well as revived collaboration with American and Canadian military agencies. It's sometimes not that easy to establish the exact connections to the weapons applications of the research. We have, for instance, documentation from a U.S. National Research Council committee in which David Frost's research at McGill is said to exemplify the type of research needed to develop more lethal thermobaric explosives. And Frost and his colleagues continue to receive funding from the Canadian military, and they also partner with U.S. military researchers on a regular basis. I'm being very general here. If I recited the entirety of the information that we have on this lab, it would go on for hours. One thing that it illustrates as a pattern of activity is uh, the connection between this military research and actual armed conflict. So the first wave of this research occurring in the late 60s, coinciding with the Vietnam War, and the most recent wave beginning in the early 2000s when uh, the U.S. was invading Afghanistan and Iraq, grants appear to spike. The level of funding and support for this research spikes when a large-scale war effort is creating an interest in the rapid development of new military technology. And we've seen that wars are creating not only markets for the new technologies that are the product of the military research, but a testing ground, which helps militaries to decide new research priorities as well as to accelerate their R&D cycle. And for us, this illustrates the ways in which researchers, through grant money, as well as the university through prestige profit from war efforts. When there are large-scale military operations in the world being conducted by the American and Canadian and other militaries, it's good for the military researchers at McGill. This creates an investment in war on the part of the university that is part of what we want to break as a group opposing this. Arabella, do you want to discuss yours, and then I'll do aerospace mechatronics. Yeah. So the Computational Fluid Dynamics Laboratory develops simulation software and anti-icing technology for unmanned aerial vehicles. The simulation software is called FENSAP ICE, and it's used to optimize the design of the drone and to help develop anti-icing systems, which is important for militaries because they've encountered problems, technological problems, due to the icy conditions of the regions where these drones are being sent. So this technology is very important to militaries, and the CFD lab is largely funded by aerospace manufacturers, such as Bombardier, CAE, and Bell Helicopter. For example, in August 2013, CAE signed a contract potentially worth $100 million with the U.S. Air Force to train drone pilots, and the technology that is required to fulfill this contract is the kind of technology that's being developed at the CFD lab, which CAE is funding. Also, the lab director of the CFD lab He is also the CEO of Numerical Technologies, which is a company that operates out of a McGill office and sells FENSAP ICE, the software being developed at the CFD lab. He sells that to aerospace companies such as Lockheed Martin, which is one of the largest defense contractors in the world. The FENSAP ICE software 
has been used to develop the F-35 fighter jet, which is expected to become the U.S. Air Force's primary lethal air power in the next coming decades. And Canada, the U.K., Australia, and Israel plan to buy them as well. Furthermore, numerical technologies is expanding more and more into military contracts. The professor presented a paper on the technology that he and McGill researchers are developing that can stabilize small drones from gusts unique to urban canyon environments while tracking mobile and elusive targets. Up until now, the military has used smaller drones for surveillance, but with this technology, they would be able to use small attack drones in urban environments. So you can see the research that's happening at the CFD lab. The relationships and the applications of this research indicate the military nature of the research going on at Miguel. The lab is often defended, saying that it has civilian applications, but this kind of technology that's being developed, such as anti-icing systems for drones, those are only applicable for drones. They aren't useful for large commercial jets because they don't face the same risks as drones do. So this kind of technology is really only for military settings. I'll discuss the uh, Aerospace Mechatronics Lab, which we knew nothing about up until this past winter when we got the documents back from an access information request to the Canadian military, which revealed a $380,000 contract with McGill and Professor Inna Scharf, who's the leading researcher at the Aerospace Mechatronics Lab, and the contract was to develop autonomous landing systems for drones. And the language used in the statement of work and in the contract is quite revealing as to the applications of this research and their military nature. The research is said to contribute to decisive operations in the urban battle space by, quote, providing situational awareness to dismounted soldiers while providing a force multiplier to the dismounted soldier unit. So essentially, McGill researchers in the computer engineering department are developing software to enable drones to land autonomously on static and moving targets. The example is given in the language of the contract is rooftops as well as armored personnel carriers. The same military researchers that are collaborating with McGill on this have proposed a set of tactics for urban warfare using small and highly maneuverable UAVs that include what are called strike bots, meaning miniature armed drones. This fairly clearly indicates that McGill's research is likely to contribute to a weaponized offensive drone technology, similar to what Arabella was discussing with armed miniature drone technology being envisioned for future wars by Western militaries. The Aerospace Mechatronics Lab was the target of a blockade in March 2014, which lasted about four hours until McGill called the police onto campus to break it up. This is a lab that we're going to keep watching and continue to target for disruption as it continues to conduct research that is directed at improving the capabilities of military drones for future conflicts. So tell me more about the founding of the current group. We didn't initially take on the name Demilitarized McGill. That came a few months later. I would say that the initial group of people, and there's no like, single answer to this because people were for sure coming from different places, but I guess the context of the post-student strike was fairly important around that time. It was September, October 2012. 
the student strike against the Quebec government tuition hike had grown into a massive social movement that was posing a lot more radical questions than would concern only the, uh, the raise in tuition. This movement achieved the bare minimum of its goals, and the tuition hike was cancelled and the government was changed, and subsequent to that, essentially collapsed and could no longer sustain the same sort of presence in the streets and on campuses. And I would say at a number of campuses around Quebec, we saw more locally focused, locally driven movements take hold. And these would be organizing with very tangible and local objectives that I saw echoes of around different campuses. So I would put the militarized McGill, the beginning of this version, in that context. So you had a number of people who had various experiences in the Quebec student strike, as well as people who were arriving around that time, new students at McGill who came together with shared intentions that developed. And because of the experience of the student strike, probably a more radical critique of the university as an institution and the ways in which it fits into capitalism, to imperialism, than might otherwise have occurred. What kinds of actions to oppose the military connections of the university has demilitarized McGill taken in its current incarnation? Demilitarize is not just focused on awareness. Demilitarize McGill has organized walking tours and workshops and film screenings, as well as published articles about our position, and those will continue. We've also conducted two blockades this year, one for the Aerospace Mechatronics Lab, which Kevin discussed, and also a blockade of the Shockwave Physics Lab, which happened in February 2014. The lab was blocked for about two hours. And that will likely continue, and we'll be looking for new ways of disrupting this research while spreading the information about what's going on. Before we really started in 2012, 99% of the campus, I would say, did not know that McGill was actively contributing to drone and thermobaric explosives research. That information now has been widely disseminated. People talk about it on campus. There are discussions. That's one avenue for putting pressure on the university because we feel that it gets difficult for the university to actually justify this research on any kind of academic grounds when the details of the applications and the relationships between the researchers and their funders are public knowledge, and that's clearly motivated them to do a lot to prevent the information from getting out, but it is getting out, and that has created problems for the university administration. Spreading that information, doing our own research that allows us to draw out from the endless web of connections that it can feel like at times the important relationships between McGill and the weapons that are being used to kill people in military operations around the world. That needs to be part of sort of trajectory of escalating tactics which don't rely on participating in the university governance structures and the structures of policy reform to affect change. We've seen that McGill has used those kinds of avenues in the past to co-opt the struggle that students want to lead and turn it into something that is ultimately controlled by the university and the administration. We want to be very careful to avoid that and to be engaged in talking with students on campus, talking with members of the community, and finding the ways that 
autonomously we can build a relation of power with the university through which we can actually end these military research activities rather than see them merely better regulated or done more transparently. And give me a sense of the range of reactions you've had from other folks on campus, the range of conversations that you've gotten into when raising awareness about the university's involvement in military research. Well, a common reaction is surprise, which I think is normal. People don't expect weapons to be under development at their university campus. I guess that leads to a conversation of whether it is actually surprising or not that this type of activity is happening at a university, and that's a good entry point for a broader discussion, perhaps, of the university's ongoing participation in colonialism and imperialism, and university as really an essential site of the reproduction of systems of domination. And military research, I think, is is useful for that. It's something that initially seems exceptional. You know, it's like, how could a university be doing this? But then when you look at the history of the university, of McGill in particular, it sort of makes a lot of sense. And by opposing this one manifestation of the university's role in these systems, that can open up a larger discussion that is extremely important to have. Other sort of discussions that come up, we often hear about academic freedom. You know, researchers are free to choose in university what they're going to research, and they're not responsible for the applications of that research. You tend to respond to that, but questioning in what way this is actually an example of academic freedom, where it's arguably not the free choices of these academics that are determining the path of their research. What's determining the nature of their research is the demands of military agencies tasked with improving the technologies with which states will fight wars. So that discussion, too, is quite useful in my mind for challenging certain liberal conceptions of university and academic freedom. And in doing this work, what's your sense of how much these concerns are resonating with people at the moment of the scope for mobilizing people around issues of war and empire on the McGill campus and more broadly in the community? I think it's really challenging to organize mass opposition in a Canadian city to military operations that are happening 10,000 kilometers away it seems like the avenues for protest are so easily confined to the purely symbolic. You know, you can protest at a consulate, an embassy, government offices. People can write their members of parliament. What's really lacking often is a tangible objective in my mind. I think that's finding and targeting the concrete manifestations of the war economy and of Canadian and U.S. imperialism in the spaces we inhabit every day or go to school and work in can be a way of energizing and and motivating anti-war action domestically, particularly in a period that is relatively quiet. There is no imminent large-scale war effort on the part of Canada or the United States. Despite that, the research that is being done right now on university campuses and in other places is materially contributing to the ability of Canada, the United States, and their allies to fight wars in the future, to lower the risks involved in military aggression in other parts of the world. And these are sites where tangible goals can be achieved. 
rather than the merely symbolic efforts that don't seem to necessarily have an effect. You're grounding this work in a fairly radical critique of the university as an institution. What is that critique? That looks different for different people, for sure, and depends a lot on people's varied experiences of the university. My experiences of McGill and universities in Quebec very much formed in the student strike where, like, every week university administration was calling riot police onto the campus to disperse protesters and to force teaching staff to teach classes in order to break the strike. So it's a critique that has to be grounded in experience, I think, to not just be taking theoretical positions that can't be made concrete. But essentially, we see military research as a manifestation of the ways in which the university is a critical institution for the reproduction of capitalist relations. And capitalism in its current stage requires the imperialist projects to control populations in parts of the world that contain resources necessary for expansion of capitalism. The military research at McGill follows the same logic as the mining research and the research that is supporting technology that's going to be used for fracking and natural gas extraction. Uh, the same research in the you know, psychology department that is seeking to understand the psychology of insurgent groups in failed states. And it obviously goes beyond just the research projects. If you look at the funding of the university, McGill's funding is increasingly corporate as the government cuts funding to education. The same companies that are benefiting from and funding the research at McGill are making possible the maintenance of the university as an institution in various ways. For me, that means that the university can't necessarily be reformed or returned to some sort of past public mandate because the state power and the imperialist projects that is there to support require it to take on certain projects and certain objectives that are counter to the ability of people around the world to live freely and without the threat of military invasion and without being submitted to the demands of capital and large corporations. What are the things coming up in the next six months or a year for Demilitarized McGill that the two of you are most excited about? We're going to come together in September when people are back in Montreal and work out a rough plan for the, the next year. I can't say that there's too much set in stone yet, but certainly I'm excited for building on the pressure we've been able to start creating and seeing where we can take that. The university has started another round of policy review process on their research policy that we will be deciding how to engage with as a group, and uh, we'll see what that leads to. You have been listening to my interview with Kevin Paul and Arabella Colombier of Demilitarize McGill. To find out more about their work, go to demilitarizemcgill.com. That's all one word, demilitarizemcgill.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 
Yeah.